Yeah, I think I've got kind of an unconventional path to uh, where I made it as far as hockey goes. Um, definitely uh, was kind of the norm for California players when I was growing up, but that was not, you know, it's not the normal. Oh, I was on the pond in my backyard in the middle of winter in Minnesota or whatever. So um, <clears throat> my next door neighbors were older than me. They both played hockey and spent a lot of time in their uh, in, I, I guess in what you would call a backyard, it was more of a driveway, um, shooting pucks and whatnot. And I was younger, so I, I wanted to fit in with them. So I jumped in and they were awesome and kind of fostered this love of the game. Sure enough, like a, a roller hockey league opened up in a parking lot down the street from my house at an elementary school. It started when I was five or six. And uh, then the LA Kings built a brand new uh, practice facility not far from my house, mm -hmm. and it was about 10. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre. If you're active at all, whether you're running or simply out walking for the day, you've probably experienced one of the number one problems that active people have, and that's chafing. Solpre's all-new, all-natural anti-chafe balm solves that problem while feeding your skin the vital nutrients it needs to be healthy. If you'd like to stop chafing once and for all and treat your body right, go to Solpri.com to check out the anti-chafe balm today. That's S-O-L-P-R-I.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today is a rarity for me, but very, very welcome. Former pro hockey player, owner of a company called Rapid Athlete Development, sometimes known as Rad Hockey, but we're going to be he's going to be moving into more sports in the future, so looking forward to hear about that. Um, currently living in L.A. doing residential real estate, which is a bit of a shift, but that's okay. He also has a few different philanthropic foundations he's worked on or starting, um, and we're definitely going to get into that in this episode. Welcome to the show, Brett Beebe. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Looking forward to diving into some of these topics with you. Yeah, and uh, thanks for hanging out with me. Like we were talking about um, before we got going, it's it, trying to figure out how to um, provide value to people is a big deal as a business owner, we're both business owners. And it's always, I'm always very grateful that people are willing to spend time with me so I can share you with my customers and the other people that listen to the show. So, um, I don't know if it always comes across, but I am, it's hard to say uh, or express, I guess, how grateful I am that the people like you want to hang out with me for an hour or so and just, and just chat. So thank you for coming on. Oh, absolutely. This is, uh, the stuff's great. I think the more we can all help each other out and spread the word about, you know, positive people doing positive things, the world's going to be a better place. So I'm all in on this stuff. So I have to, I have to admit um, being a pretty much a, a hockey novice. Um, I've watched a little bit of hockey. My college roommate loved the heck out of hockey, hockey. So I'm almost like, I wish he was available, but he's a, he's a doctor now running around the city, <laughs> taking care of patients. Um, and I but I have spoken to one former, uh, well, she's a Olympic hockey player. Um, she played at Harvard. So I had one hockey guest on before, but otherwise, uh, I think you're my first pro hockey player. Tell me a little bit about getting into hockey. I assume you started probably at a young age. Yeah, I think I've got kind of an unconventional path to uh, where I made it as far as hockey goes. Um, definitely uh, was kind of the norm for California players when I was growing up, but that was not, you know, it's not the normal, oh, I was on the pond in my backyard in the middle of winter in Minnesota or whatever. So um, <clears throat> my next door neighbors were older than me. They both played hockey and spent a lot of time in there uh, in, I, I guess, in what you would call a backyard. It was more of a driveway, um, shooting pucks and whatnot. And I was younger, so I, I wanted to fit in with them. So I jumped in and they were awesome and kind of fostered this love of the game. Sure enough, like a, a roller hockey league opened up in a parking lot down the street from my house at an elementary school. It started when I was five or six. And... Uh, then the LA Kings built a brand new uh, practice facility not far from my house mm -hmm. and it was about 10 and then that's when I started playing travel ice hockey so I was a little later than most most kids now are starting you know six seven eight years old and um, they're pretty good so that's 
that's how I got started. Um, it took an unconventional journey. I was played very, very low level until I kind of hit puberty. And then it was, you know, kind of full throttle from there. What's kind of interesting is that I've spoken to, I don't know, a number of unconventional pros now in various sports, obviously not hockey since you're the first pro hockey player I've spoken to, but it seems like a lot of people say I take, I took an unconventional path and that's ended up benefiting them because it gives them uh, a unique perspective or a unique skill set that not everybody else has. Yeah. I mean, uh, I would say that the more people I've talked to and the more guys I, I cross paths with, you know, on, on the way to, you know, college and, you know, I, I didn't play in the NHL, but, you know, played in the minors and over in Europe. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the more I talk to people, the more people have a more similar story than that, that, that I do than, than maybe the alternative, which is the person that was, you know, structured from early on all the way through. Um, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I had this conversation with my dad the other day. I'm, I'm so grateful that he never pushed me. He never forced me to do anything I didn't want to do sports wise. Um, he just let me play. And um, I don't think I took my first private lesson until I was 12 when I told him, Hey, I really want to do this. And he's like, okay, I'll, you know, I'll pay for it. But you know, if you're going to, if, if, if this is what you want to do, then you have to do it consistently. And that was really the first time he ever told me like, if you tell me you're going to do something, then you, you know, you've got to be all in if I'm going to pay for it. Mm -hmm. um, I see now kids that their parents want them to, to, to every time that they're doing something sports wise, that it needs to be structured and it needs to have, um, you know, X, Y, and Z laid out for it for a full hour or whatever it is. Um, but the best coaches I think are the ones that understand that at a young age, kids just need to play and that's the best teacher. So I'm sure a lot of the people that you've encountered, they played other sports. They, mm -hmm. um, they didn't maybe specialize in one thing until they were older. And we preach that to parents all the time, like keep your kids in other sports, but it's so, it's so easy to, to, to just like do this all the time and say, well, that kid's getting better than my kid. He probably needs more lessons or that kid's getting better than my kid. You know, I need to catch up to him. And I think that's where today more than ever, especially with social media and, um, and things like that, people are constantly looking side to side and, and trying to keep up with other people rather than focusing on their own journey. And I think people that, the, the people that took that unconventional route, they stayed, they stayed away from looking around at other people and they just had fun doing what they were doing. Yeah. I think I saw, on your Twitter feed, and I, I can't recall off the top of my head, you had, I think, retweeted a, a coach's comment of, or, or quote about, like, the, the rate of progression of your journey is not the same as the rate of progression for other people, so just focus on what you're yeah. doing. I mean, it's, it, and, and you can throw thousands of examples at people, and they're like, well, my kid's different, mm -hmm. and it's just like, you know, I, I played with guys that peaked at 14, 15 years old in their respective sports, whether it was, you know, baseball, basketball, hockey. Um, and then I played with other guys that didn't peak and get great until they were older. And I, 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 I beat this one to death now that he's become a good friend of mine, but the, um, the perfect example is a guy named Matt Gilroy and Matt, Matt works with me with, at Rad Hockey now. He just retired from a 10 year professional career. And Matt was like five, six, 140 pounds at 16, 17 years old. And finally hit puberty, grows up, had zero college offers at 20 years old. Because in hockey, you kind of, it's a little bit different window. You can start at 20, or you can, your, your oldest you can be to start college is, is 21. Um, and he, find, he walks on to, be, to Boston University, one of the most prestigious hockey programs in the country and walks on as a defenseman. He's played forward his whole life, but he's finally growing and ends up being the captain, winning a national championship and winning college hockey's Heisman Trophy, which is called the Hobie Baker and signs a NHL contract. And I'm sure he had lots of people that passed him when he was 17 that he ended up passing by the time he was 21, 22, 23. Mm -hmm. So there's no right route for everybody just you know, I think the, the hard, the hard part now is like, everyone's looking to make money off people mm -hmm. in youth sports and it's tough to see. So you get these, 
um, you know, family advisors or agents or whatever you want to call them. And, um, and, and they try to tell you how good you are, or what you need to do, or all the specialized coaching you need to do. The best thing you can do is find somebody that believes in you, that's in your corner, that stands to make, you know, no money off of you. And they just want to see the best for you. And they'll give you guidance because they've been where you want to go. Sports, business, doesn't matter. That's, you know, the mentor thing is huge. Yeah, yeah. I wonder, especially because um, you work with youth athletes, you know, is there a way to cut through that, that almost like toxic parenting mentality that's like, that, that parents decided, like, my kid's going to be a pro hockey player. We're going to pay whatever we, w- we need to. We're going to take him to however many lessons. And, like, it it, it um, ignores whether the kid has the desire, first of all, and then also robs them of the opportunity to try other sports and see do they excel more at, at baseball or, you know, something that's – not whatever they've been pigeonholed into. Is there any way to, to cut through that? Yeah, I mean, it's tough. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I actually focused on and one of the things that, that I've done with, with RAD and with our program is um, when we do events, whether it's our camps or our tournament teams or things like, like that, um, we try to always bring in guest speakers or, or people, whether it's, you know, professional agents, NHL players, um, you know, and, and anyone in between those as well, coaches, we bring in NHL coaches all the time. And we try to, and we try to get that message through to people. And we try to have people who have either been where they want to be playing wise or coaches who are going to be recruiting them, you know, down the road. What do you look for in a college athlete? What do you look for in a, in a, in a pro player? What do you look for like when you were playing? What was it like at this age? And almost all of them say the same things over and over again. Yet, I, I think the, the hard part is it's not necessarily that parents get into their heads like, hey, my kid needs to make it to the NHL. It's more of like an ego thing that my kid needs to be better than all the kids that we play with here. Or my kid needs to be the best player in our neighborhood. Like, it's like an ego thing like that, that the kid's ability is reflective of the parent and, mm-hmm. and who they are. When in reality, I mean, I work with 500 to 1,000 kids a year now in our, in our program. And I promise you that my favorite kids, you know, some of them are really talented players, but my favorite kids are the ones that I'm going to go up to their parent and say, hey, you have done an awesome job raising your kid. And uh, like I'm excited to see what he does goes and does with his life. I absolutely do not do that to the kid who goes and scores five goals in a game and goes and celebrates by himself and doesn't high five his teammates, doesn't come and say thank you after every skate or pick up the pucks or clean up the locker room or whatever else, because eventually everyone else is going to catch up to where you are and your ability. If you're not a good kid, you know it's it is what it is at that point. But it seems like I've talked about this with other guests. It seems like there's is, I guess maybe I should ask, is there any correlation between that? I'll call it a humble attitude, but that, that attitude of like, you know, I'll help pick things up. I'll help set things up, do, you know, do the things that are involved in being part of the whole team framework instead of like the me show. Is there any correlation between that and that and keeping that, what I refer to as beginner's mind where it's like always willing to learn, always being humble enough to ask questions and know that you can learn more. I mean, I don't know if you, if you've read it or not, but in uh, Michael Jordan's biography um, talk about it in there, like no matter how good he got, he was always like probing other players. How do you do this? How do you do that? Always trying to get better. And that's, I mean, I mean, among other things, one of the reasons he was so good. Yeah, I mean, I think you, I think you worded it perfectly. There's that, you know, that Zen mentality of a beginner's mind where you're, you know, there's, there's always something to improve on um, versus the expert mind where it's, hey, I know everything and there's nothing else I can get better at. 
Um, in hockey, the perfect example is a guy, Sidney Crosby, it's pretty familiar mm -hmm. name to most people. He's probably been the best player in the NHL for 10 years. Um, I had the, the fortunate privilege to skate with him for two or three summers here in LA when he was here training. And obviously, like, number one, I walk in the locker room and I'm, I'm a young college guy and the best player in the NHL is sitting right across from me. And I knew he was going to be there skating. It was the first one of, you know, a full summer. And as soon as I walk in the locker room, I'll never forget. Like I, I he just, he goes, Hey, I'm Sid. Nice to meet you. And I'm like, yeah, I know who you are. Like, thanks. Right. And I'm, but immediately I was, it, it disarmed everything that I was, thinking about made me feel comfortable. He had no reason to do that. Yeah. Couldn't have been a nicer guy all summer. Um, and, and then he goes out and like you said, all he wants to do is get better. He's asking for guys to throw him bad passes. He's asking for, you know, this, that, or the other thing. And like, he's constantly watching and he, he's on the ice three to four days a week, starting in like June, which is like a month or two after his season ended, mm -hmm. if that and is working his ass off and it's like that's that's how you become the best and it, it goes back to kids too it's like are the kid you know um I, I coach a team during the regular season and we've been uh we were with the, with the la junior kings program and we've had one of the top teams in the country the last couple of years and our top players are the ones that that, that come they come and they ask for more they want they want to know why they want to know how they, they're battling, instead of taking the easy route and practice and going against someone that might not be as good as them, they're finding the, the, the other strongest player to make sure that they're going against them every day in practice. And they, they, they do it themselves. Like you can't force it. And uh, they've turned into some really, really talented hockey players because they're, they're, they're willing to, they're willing to fail. And I think that's a big thing that parents really protect their kids against in today's society that I see is they, they won't allow their kids to fail. And if, if they do fail, they make an excuse Or these other kids that really have become successful that I've seen their parents, they don't, they're not sitting there hovering. They let the kids make whatever mistakes they're going to make. Mm -hmm. And the kids that really want to get better, they don't want to make that mistake again. So they come to us and they're like, coach, can we go through the film from that last game? I didn't play well and I know I can be better or, Hey, can I have, you know, can we do this in practice? Because I was struggling with it in the game and I don't want to struggle again. And it's like, instead of hiding from those struggles or hiding from the mistakes or, or parents that, you know, move those roadblocks out of the way, the ones that stumble the earliest and, and then, and then become better for them. Those are the ones that have the long-term success. And I'm sure it's, I'm not a parent, but I'm sure it's hard to watch your kid fail at something. And I'm sure it's hard to watch them be disappointed because they didn't make the team or because they didn't get on the, you know, the power play or because they didn't play as much that game, but rather than making an excuse or rather than fighting it, find out why and find out how to improve to get better. And the ones that do that are the ones that really improve. Is there, is there any way to, I, so I always struggle a little bit about where does motivation come from? Mm -hmm. So I, I, I'm going to take a wild guess and say that both of us are probably pretty internally motivated um in at least in my own case i always felt like a lot of that is just it, it was there like it wasn't coached it's just as you mentioned there's you know the kids that ask why didn't i do well what did i miss how can i do better is there is there any way to change the perspective of kids who aren't like that and you know, move them more towards that like improvement mindset. Is there, is there any wiggle room or is it just, it is what it is? Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of those, um, one of those things that um, everyone has a different coaching philosophy and that, that can be, that can be the same thing with teaching. Um, you know, we've all had teachers that we liked better than others. Mm -hmm. um, we've all had classes that we like better than others. We've all had coaches that we like better than others. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough question to answer because I think if we had the perfect answer, you know, it would be universal. Mm -hmm. I, I believe that you're a product of your environment and 
So when, when I, when we do our training, our goal is to bring together kids that have that mindset. So if you don't have that ability and that, and that mindset to do it, you're either one, not going to be selected to come work with us or number two, if you have all of the ability and I, I joke around, I always say that our program, we're like the new England Patriots. You give us like, you, you give us somebody that's cast aside that maybe doesn't have the um, maybe they're not, maybe they, maybe they're not the best kid. Maybe they don't have the, the best character. Maybe they don't have, you know, th those things quite yet, but they've got the skill and they really want to get better, but they need a few, they need a little refining. We've created an environment where if you bring us one or two of those kids, they're going to come in and they're going to be molded by the other guys around them. And it's basically going to be like, here's how we do things here. And you're either going to get with that program and you're going to improve and you're going to join us because we want to get better. And the only way we're going to get better is if you're working your ass off and doing the things that we do to get better. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, great. And you're going to now improve. So I think creating that environment is so important. And, um, you know, for, for certain kids, like if, if you're, if you're around, uh, if you're around a bunch of kids that, don't, that, that aren't like that, you can do all the drills and, and training you want to do. But if, if no one there has that mindset and there's not a leader pushing it, you're, you'll never develop it. But I do think it's a develop. It's, it is something that can be developed. And, same thing with business, right? If you, if you surround yourself with yes men all the time that are just going to agree with your ideas, you're not going to have any progress. Like, I don't think Elon Musk or, or any of these guys, they walk into an office and everybody agrees with them. They want people to, they want people to tell them no, or they want people to push them. They want people to, to, to push back a little bit. And again, the, the lead, it's, it's ultimately responsible for the leader to create that environment and, and recognize that there's other people that might have differing views, but it's going to help the overall end product. And that's, I think that's how you develop that kind of intensity and that mindset is this is how we do it. I think that shows up in a lot of places. And it, anytime I think about that, I think about um, one of the quote is about the, you're the, you're the product of the five people you spend the most time with. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge, huge, huge believer in that. Yeah. So it's like, I think I, whenever I first encountered that and who knows where it was? Cause a lot of people talk about it. Mm -hmm. I feel like I remember them giving an example, like girl scouts and like the girl scout troop that sells the most cookies sells a extraordinary number more than like the next. And it also goes into like the 80, 20 principle, but it's like they could bring in new girls and they're going to sell more because of the systems because of the environment they're all set up in that little ecosystem yeah where they're all kind of like they're all accountable to each other and it, it's not just a matter of you can be a laggard but i think it i think it's in part inspiration and then in part it sets it sets the bar right like you it's belong here thing. if you can exist otherwise it's going to be uncomfortable well, I think it's just, um, it, it's, it's the expectations that are set from day one and mm -hmm. with our, with, with the, with, so there's, there's two hockey avenues that I have. One is, is rad and, and, and we run from, uh, April to August and our whole thing is off season training. We do, we basically take kids from different programs. We bring them together they train, they play together, they do all that stuff. And then we send them back to whatever team they play on in the winter. And, you know, hopefully they have a better, a better season than the year before. And then during the, the regular season, I coach a team here in LA that's a triple A level team, which is kind of the highest um, for, for their, for their birth year. And in, in those teams, you know, you're, you're selecting 17, 18 players and, there are certain things that I'm there to coach those kids on. And there's certain things that are expected. Like there's no, I'm not coaching your effort. I'm not coaching your, your, your passing. You're like, you, you need to know, like it's a requirement that your effort and that your passing are going to be as, as good as possible. Everything else we're going to, we're going to coach you. We're going to get you better. And if I think a lot of coaches have to waste time 
on coaching effort, coaching intensity, um, coaching work habits. When, but when those are the expectations and like, hey, anything less than that is you're just not going to be here. I think at that point, you now see a huge step in, in, in development for players because you're able to focus on the things that, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't you know, are, are the things that they need to get better on. Could you imagine if somebody walked into your office right now and said, hey, I want to work for you. And you said, okay, well, here's your tasks. But then you're having to teach them also how to, how to breathe and how to eat and how to right. walk around. And it's like, could you imagine if you had to teach those things first before you got into teaching them how to do a job? And that's sort of what, you know, what I think organizations in sports, like, again, I go back to the New England Patriots all the time. It's like, they're able to have success because the coaches don't have to spend time at the beginning of the year uh, teaching some of the things that other teams have to do. It's like the expectation is this. So you've now eliminated a month worth of coaching that some of these other teams have to go through. So mm -hmm. you're now a month ahead of the competition. So how do you, if I'm going to create a new organization with these expectations, how do you do that? Do you just, cause here, so here's what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about, so I ran cross country in high school and I ran in a high school that did not, have uh, a lot of participation. So we had like 20 people, girls and boys, versus like the most dominant um, school in our district had 120 person program. Their cross country program was bigger than their football program and had that culture of this, the coach there had been there forever. He had his own like training manual for nutrition and there were expectations to be met and then they were met. Uh, but he also didn't turn kids away. So I'm thinking about, in my case, with my like, I guess it's a little different with a high school because you're set into these are the kids that are fed into high school. But um, if if we had said, you know, if you walk like don't show up tomorrow or something like that, we would have probably cut a quarter of the people that we had. So how do you how do you get a program going and have those expectations. Sure. Well, I, I think, I think it's really simple. Um, how do you, how do you measure your results? Um, if you're measuring your results by wins and losses, then your team's going to run out of players. Your, your school of 20 people is going to run out of players mm -hmm. and, and runners before you ever have a chance to compete for anything. Right. Um, you know, some of those bigger schools, like in the, in the bigger programs, if you measure by wins and losses, you're probably going to have some pretty good success. Um, but it's defining expectations, right? So if, uh, if I'm the coach and, uh, and, and, and you've got, you know, three boys and three girls that they need to walk half a mile after every mile at the beginning, and they're doing, you know, five miles. So they walk, they walk one, or they run one, walk half, run one, walk half, whatever the expectation is that the next day you're only going to walk a quarter mile next time. And the expectation is that you get 1% better every day, right? So just don't stay the same. So as long as you set those expectations early enough, like I'm not, you know, when I work with our AAA players, our really high end, our high end players, I'm getting some of the best kids throughout Southern California to play with us. I'm not going to, I'm not going to coach my 10 year olds the same way that I coach my 14 year olds. Like mm -hmm. the 10 year olds still need help on passing. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, blow the whistle and make the kids skate because their passing is bad when they're 10 years old. You know, I'm going to have to, and they're going to work on it. But the expectation of hard work and that, and that like competing hard is the expectation. If you do that, I don't care what your skills are. That's what we're there to get you better at. If you can't shoot the puck real well, if you can't do certain things real well at 10 years old, that's totally fine. But as long as you work your butt off mm -hmm. and you're competing, you're, you're always going to have a spot with me and you're a good kid. So same thing goes with, with, you know, a, a, a team that might not be that strong. They might not, it doesn't matter what sport it is, but it's how, it's how you set the expectations and that you, you know, you set, you know, smart goals, like measurable goals and, and as you push kids to achieve those goals, how do you reward them for it uh, is, is a huge thing. If kids keep doing things and there's no reward, they're, gonna, they're not going to enjoy it. 
how do you how do you set those measurable standards and what do you do once they get achieved and then once they get achieved how do you raise them to the next level so that's that's the simple answer to that is you know set the expectations and 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 grow from there okay i i'm not imminently going to be coaching youth but i do think about the various coaches i've had over the years and their attitudes and expectations and um, the coach that's in charge of program I was at um, now very much is like he doesn't care what your ability level is as long as you work hard like kind of like you said if you gotta work if you gotta walk yeah to start with like that's fine but we're gonna make improvement I guess when I was thinking about um, the walking thing I was thinking about people I knew who were capable of continuing to run but just slacking off yeah, well, I think at that point then, I think that there is – that is where the really good coach comes in. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's where the really good teacher comes in, right? So how does a teacher get a kid that she sees a lot of potential in or he sees a lot of potential in who maybe just doesn't study that hard or mm-hmm. maybe just doesn't do the extra work? but he knows that there's something there. She knows that there's something there. How does, this is, this is where, you know, good to great, right? So how does a, a, good, a good coach or a good teacher can, can, can produce good material for the kids to study and learn or to improve on in their sport? A great teacher or a great coach can pull that potential out of them by finding whatever it is that motivates them. So why does that kid walk when he has the potential to run or why does that girl, you know, why does she only go at three quarter percent or th- you know, like not 75 not, instead of all 75%. All yeah. Right. Instead of, instead of, you know, that there's another gear in there that you can get out of them. What are you doing to create a relationship with that player that they're going to want to do whatever it takes because they be, they know that you believe in them. So I think if you um, a, a kid will never will never work hard for you until until they know that you'll do the same for them. And I think some coaches just expect kids to have that mindset. But I think you know it doesn't necessarily need to be dangling a carrot at the end of a stick, right? And say, hey, if you do this in under five minutes, you're gonna get a you know an ice cream after practice. But it's, it's what, what, what genuinely motivates you to be great. Maybe, maybe your home life is tough and you're just, doing, you're just running cross country because it's something to do to keep you away from being at the house. Mm-hmm. But how would a coach know that unless they, unless they had a conversation with you and, and, the, and the player felt like they could share that with you? Or maybe, hey, coach, like I would love to run more, but – I, I get so tired. I barely sleep at night or I don't have access to a lot of food. So I'm mm-hmm. always like running out of gas or, you know, Hey coach, I just, you know, running's not my favorite thing. I'm just doing it because my parents are making me. And then it's like, okay, and how do we, how do we say, well, okay, if you're going to be here, you may as well make the most of it. Let's, and you can, you can help a kid find their passion in just about anything. If you're willing to dive a little deeper than surface level. That's fair enough. I think I'm trying to make make broad strokes out of a situation where you, you really can't. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, there's always going to be the, there's there's like I'm not sitting here saying it's perfect. Like right. there's certain kids where I'm like you know, I was joking with Matt Gilroy the other day like maybe at the beginning of the hockey camp stuff, he was he was trying to he was trying so hard to work so hard on every single player and I'm like dude you are going to burn yourself out because <laughs> you what you need to do is there's going to be three types of players there's going to be the ones that are up here that you're not going to have to worry about much on all you're going to have to do is help correct them on little things here and there and help them get better there's your middle of the pack kids who they're going to they're going to be coachable but you're going to have to kick them in the butt here and there to get them going make sure you spend some time with those kids. And then there's going to be the other, the the third level kid. And that doesn't necessarily mean the least skilled of the three level kids. Like there's a lot of times the kid that's here 
can can be the most skilled, most talented player. But if they're not coachable and they're not willing to learn and they're not willing to, to do those things, at that point, I am not going to invest my time in you if you are not willing to accept what I have to tell you. Mm-hmm. And at that point, unfortunately, I just don't have the time or the, the, the bandwidth to spend that much time on those kids. So eventually they're going to fade out and they're going to go to another program or they're going to go, you know, to another group and maybe somebody else pulls it out of them. Right. The problem is, is like, you can't, you can't make it work a hundred percent of the time, but as long as you as a coach have a formula for what it is that you're looking for and how you get it out of them mm-hmm. more often than not, you're going to be able to help more people. And then, you know, the kind of kids that you, it doesn't matter, kids, NHL players, whatever. Like, right, right, right. It's, it's all, it's all the same. It's all the same stuff. But ultimately the, the ones that want to be there and that know your philosophy, they're going to, they're going to be the ones that flock to you. And the ones mm-hmm. that, Hey, that coach is hard on me. That coach is tough. That coach is going to push me. I'd rather go somewhere else where I don't have to do that. Eventually that'll, start to happen like again back to the patriots like a lot of guys don't aren't going to go there because they know that they're going to be held accountable every single day mm-hmm. and that's daunting for some people and you know so that's that's sort of how we try to we try to operate we want to attract the people that we you know we want the energy that that we put out to come back to us and the people that we work with fair enough um it, it's a a little bit of a segue, but it kind of makes me wonder, you said you had played pro in Europe, right? Mm-hmm. So is that, is it that mentality that leads you there? Or how do you, that, that says like, I always want to be better. I always want to be pushing myself, whatever avenue that takes. Is that how you get to Europe or, or how, I mean, how does that avenue happen? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll be the first one to admit I, I matured mentally at a, at a later age than mm. I wish I would have. Um, you know, as a kid growing up, I, I had great people around me in a, in a support type of way. Um, I, like, I always had people there to give me advice, things like that. I worked really hard. I worked, I worked as hard or harder than anybody else. Um, I just didn't necessarily work hard at the right things all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I'd be like, okay, let's go run five miles as fast as we can because it's going to make me a better hockey player which is not the case. Like that is mm-hmm. not how training works. That is not, how, but to me, I'm like, okay, I'm working, I'm working really hard at something. <laughs> it's not necessarily what I should be working at. Right. So, um, you know, I, I think, I think I could have had a, a, a more successful career if my hard work was guided in the right direction. And okay. um, so the Europe thing was more, uh, I had got my, my whole thing was when I finished college, um, I, I pretty much knew I was not going to play in the, uh, in the NHL. Mm -hmm. Um, but my goal is I was going to give myself two years of professional hockey in North America to make it as far as I could. So, um, I started in what you would call double a for the, you know, people that know baseball. Right. Um, and then the goal was if I could make it to triple a by the end of my second year, then I, then I'd keep going and I'd try to, and I'd try to, push to try to make it all the way up. Um, if I couldn't do that at the end of two years, I would go over to Europe, have a great experience over there, basically cap off my career by living abroad, playing over there and then call it a career. So I was giving myself three years basically. Um, so Europe is usually for hockey players. It's usually a fallback. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's more money to be made over there than in the minors over here. So some guys go over there, right away after college knowing, Hey, I'm not going to play in the NHL. I don't want to play in the minors in the U S and not make a lot of money. I'd rather go play in one of the top three leagues over in Europe play a 10 year career make a whole bunch of money and come back. Mm -hmm. Uh, For other guys like me that were like, you know, in the, in the, in the middle pack of the minor leagues, um, you know, I wasn't going to be playing in the number one or two league in, in Europe and making a ton of money. I was going to go play, I was going to go from the middle of the pack in the U S to the middle of the pack over in Europe. And I was going to make a, a decent amount of money and get to see the world. And that was, you know, basically capped off a year of, of a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, that's, that's how I ended up over there. And, 
that's sort of the, the mindset uh, that I think a lot of players take. It's just, and this happens on the show all the time, just anytime somebody makes a, a, a jump to a different continent or a different country, I'm always like, well, how did that happen? And, you know, in your case, yeah. it, 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 it's a, I won't say it's a straightforward path, but it's a little more straightforward. And I know, um, I feel like even one of, um, one of the guys I went to college with, I went to a very small school, like a thousand people. Um, I think he went to Europe to play basketball. So it's like, I don't know how similar, but I think it's somewhat similar in that you can go and play pro basketball in Europe versus <laughs> try to play in the NBA. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, just the number, it's, it's different here a little bit than the NBA. Um, as far as like, I know in, in Europe, there's um, a couple guys I went to college with are making some, making great careers over in Europe. Um, it, they were kind of one of them, played a couple of years in the NBA as like a, uh, you know, a 10th, 11th player on the roster mm-hmm. and kind of up and down from the, from the, from the D league there. Um, but some of those teams over in Europe, they get treated way better than the, uh, the G league. And same thing with the, like the, the leagues over in Europe for hockey, they get treated really well. Mm-hmm. So for, for some guys, it's a better lifestyle choice. It's better. Um, you know, a lot of countries over there, uh, you know, you, you play over there and, and you live there for a few years and, and maybe you get your citizenship or maybe you get certain things like I know kids born in Germany, um, they get, you know, the full uh, treatment over there for everything. And they, they get taken really, you know, they have, you know, really good systems in place. So families are like, hey, look, it'd be really great if we can go over there for a few years and, um, you know, get free health care, get free uh you know, babysitting and, and things like that that they wouldn't necessarily get here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, when they're when they're when they're only on one-year contracts most of the time, and you're kind of having to fend for yourself in the off-season. Over there, you're taking care of year-round, so it's you know, it's it's certainly a lifestyle choice. Um, I think everyone, again, everyone's journey is different. Um, you know, for me, it was for fun. I was I was single. Um, I I was knew I was at the end of my rope and I went over there with a, a really good friend of mine. So I knew it was going to be just a really fun year. Um, still competed really hard, but had a lot of fun too. Talking about it gives me a, a little bit of wanderlust. Yeah, um, I, I, I always, I, I mean, I couldn't be, I couldn't be happier. I traveled to like 11 countries. I got to ski in the Alps. I went to Oktoberfest in Germany. I went to um, Dublin for St. Patrick's day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm a big World War II history nerd, so um, living in Germany and, and getting to experience some of that and, and to, to see, um, you know, some of what you learn in, in the history books and things like that, it was like, it was amazing. So a lot of the, a lot of the traveling that I did was, you know, there was some for fun and then there was some for, you know, for learning, which was to be able to, to, be able to see some of those places was, was, was life-changing. And I know that that year that I took over there, has set me up in a better place to be more empathetic to people mm-hmm. living in a place where we, I lived in a small village in Germany outside of a big city. And like we, I knew a month before I was leaving that I was going to Germany. So I didn't never, didn't speak a word of German. And so I, I'm like trying to go grocery shopping. I'm trying to go to the store. I'm trying to do this or that. And like, you know, you know, you know enough, you know, enough German to, to say hello and to have maybe ask for, another beer at the bar or something like that, but you don't, you know, and, and so I come, I come back to the U S and like, you know, we're a country of, of immigrants. We're a country of people from all different backgrounds and ethnicities and things like that. And for the first time in my life, um, I was the minority. I was the, mm-hmm. I was the, um, you know, I was the one that people looked at, like, what is this guy doing here? Um, and you know, it's, it's very humbling. So, going over there gave me a very, very unique perspective on life that I will never forget. And I'm certainly grateful for. And how cool is it that a sport took me over there to experience all of those things and I got paid to do it. So that to me, I I encourage uh, athletes to, you know, use your sport to, to allow you to have those kind of experiences and allow you to, 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 to get uncomfortable a little bit. So Again, that's that was that's how I ended up there. That's what I got from it, and I'm sure a lot of other people that have played over in some of these places would have similar things to say. Yeah, I feel like that that experience of uh, being the minority in a situation or being 
in a situation where you're the outsider is I, I feel like it's almost fundamental to like truly understanding and being able to be empathetic with somebody when you're not, when you're now the majority, you know, um, I, I've talked about this with a few other guests. I spent when I was uh, 25 on just kind of on a lark, I found myself single so I could do whatever I want travel wise. I decided I'm going to go spend a month in Montreal. Didn't speak French, um, which in Montreal, it's kind of like cheating because half the city speaks English. Great so, I was, so I was like, it, it's kind of like, it's kind of like traveling to a, a foreign country, but on easy mode. Yeah. Um, but I mean, everything, all, all the signage is in French. There, I stayed in the French yeah. part of town, all those kind of things. And Montreal itself is really a, a, a city of immigrants. Yeah. Um, there's a t very, very large and diverse immigrant, immigrant population. And I found that the people I met often were more willing to have an actual conversation, be it uh, politically minded, ethic, you know, ethic, religious, whatever it was, you could have an actual conversation. And I think it's because of that forced experience of being so different, everybody being so different from each other, yeah. that there's no homogenous, like we all believe in red shirts and we wear white shoes and you know, yeah. like whatever it is, um, I don't know who that is. I just making something up. I, no, I, I, I know. <laughs> no, I, I couldn't agree more. And, um, you know, it's funny. I, having had the experience that I had, um, it's funny to me now to, to listen to people who are like, oh yeah, like I have, I'm, I'm worldly. I traveled all over the place. And it's like, yeah, you traveled to Europe for four weeks and you stayed in the nicest hotels for three days in each city at a time where you right. didn't, you know, you, you bounce around like from place to place and you stayed with, you know, only English speaking people, things like that. And, and uh, not to knock anybody on that cause that's great. And, and I'm sure you, I'm sure you'll get something out of that. But like, you know, for my, for my college roommates wedding gift, I bought him a, a plane ticket to come visit me in Europe. And it was right after this, it was the day after the season ended, we met each other in Amsterdam. And we backpacked through Europe for two weeks and, um, you know, had to navigate trains, had to navigate, you know, walking around to hostels and, um, you know, we went to all, all over the place. And uh, like having that experience is pretty cool. Um, but like you said, you, you meet people, um, you meet travelers, you meet, you meet people that are like-minded mm -hmm. and, that's that's where you you know you experience growth and I think with everything that's going on in our country right now, um, the the hardest the hardest part for me to see is people taking one side or the other right. of whatever of whatever it is whether it's the, the racial injustices that are going on whether it's um, uh, you know political whether it's whatever else it's it's um, it's people taking one side or the other. Like if you, if you're this, then you're totally on this side. And mm -hmm. if you're, you can't, there can't be any sort of in the middle. And I think when you live somewhere else or you experience things like that, you realize very few things in this world are black and white. Um, there's always some sort of middle ground. And the way you get there is by talking to people and understanding their experiences and understanding um, you know, who they are, where they come from, what's important to them. Same thing we talk about with a kid who we need to find motivation. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, human beings are the same way. They're going to be successful. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to, you're going to get their best potential out of them. You're going to get the most um, out of them once you understand them and their worldview and how they are, instead of just saying, Hey, I'm this. And if you aren't, then you're against me. You're my enemy. Um, and so that's, I mean, what a great perspective that hockey was able to provide for me. And, um, because I, you know, I wasn't necessarily like that all the time. Like I definitely had a, a singular worldview and a lot of things before I was able to travel and get out and meet people. And that, that, that's in the U S like I was fortunate. I, I moved away from home when I was 17. I live in a pretty affluent area in Southern California called um, Hermosa beach. It's, it's in the South Bay of Los Angeles. Um, when I grew up, it was upper middle class white families, and uh, that was my that was my worldview. I knew I knew 
I knew success because I knew the families that I interacted with on a regular basis all had a house. They all had two parents. They all had this, that. It was very structured. Everything was pretty much everybody was the same. Um, as I, I went to high school in downtown LA and that was kind of the first time my eyes got open to me of what else is out there. This private school I went to was um, quarter white, quarter black, quarter Asian, quarter uh, Hispanic. And you, everyone was from all over LA. Mm -hmm. I got, to, I, I hung out with people like kids became my best friends. I went to their house and it was in the middle of an area where I probably never would have been in LA if I didn't necessarily. And you know what? I could have cared. I couldn't have cared less because this was my buddy and this was his family. And this is his, his worldview. I'm like, wow. And you know what? And you show up every day to school with this attitude that I have and I have it easy. And you're, you're having to jump on the bus, like walk a half a mile. Like one of my buddies had to walk a half mile to the bus stop, bus to school, walk, walk to campus. It's, it's 20, 30 minutes, you know, extra than what I have to do to get there. And he still shows up and gets his work done and jumps ahead of me. And he's, and he's, and is and is way more successful than 90% of the, uh, of the people that are, are our age. And he had to go do even more than that. And the same thing, I moved away when I was 17 to go play junior hockey in Iowa. I went from here to the cornfields of, of Waterloo, Iowa. And like, Again, you know, it's super blue collar, small town, rely on the, on, the, on the John Deere foundry there for a good chunk of the jobs. You travel all over the Midwest there to these small towns playing junior hockey. And it's like, okay, I understand why a certain part of the country thinks a certain way. Like mm -hmm. I understand why, you know, people in the Midwest have a different outlook on life than people on the West Coast and people on the East Coast and people in the Northwest. Like once you interact and you and you have those experiences with people and sports are able to teach us those things a lot of a lot of times and I think that's one of the things that we push to kids a lot is that you know your sport can take you to a lot of places in this world if you allow it to I don't want to run out of time I want to give you a little chance oh. to talk about your your no I'm fine but I want to give you a chance to talk about the uh the philanthropy the philanthropic stuff you're doing now yeah. So, I mean, I think that's the most important thing that I've been able to, to, to do in my life. And uh, something that was uh, ingrained in me at a young age was that uh, to whom much is given, much is expected. And um, I'm the first one to say that I've had nothing but great support um, from family and friends my whole life. And I've never, oh, sorry. Hold on. Phone's oh, ringing. Um, I've had nothing but support from family and friends my whole life. And, and a lot of people don't have that. So every, every time I've kind of gone on this journey, I've, I've looked to find a way to help out people that haven't. So my mom went through cancer. So uh, we started a, a foundation for her back in college. Um, we raised a bunch of money that, that went to um, uh, helping women who can't afford mammograms be able to have access to those for early detection um, we did, we've done a, a bunch of stuff since, and the, the latest one was two years ago, almost two years ago to the day. Um, one of my best friends uh, killed himself and was the happiest, best, most energetic guy in the room. Always, um, couldn't have been a, a better guy. Last guy you expect to go through something like this. And we found out that there was a lot of things going on that we didn't know about. And so what we started to about a year ago that we're getting ready to launch is called, his name is Walker. So we started uh, Don't Walk Alone, which is a, a grassroots initiative uh, right now aimed at helping kids be able to talk about um, their mental health and be able to talk about things that are going on in their lives. And also, uh, and we're using youth sports as our platform. So um, being able to teach kids, number one, how to talk to, to either people in authority or their friends about what's going on in their lives. Number two, we're teaching kids how to listen. When somebody comes to you with this, how do you respond to it? And then number three, we're teaching coaches uh, what to look for, warning signs in kids that are struggling with something that they might be able to help with. And then number two, how to talk to those kids and how to interact with them so that that kid feels comfortable telling you something mm -hmm. that you can then pass on to either a parent or a professional because a lot of times, uh, these kids, they're struggling with something at home. They don't necessarily uh, want their parents to know what they're feeling. You know, parents go through a divorce or whatever. They're, uh, they show up to practice. The kid's not working hard. As a coach, 
do we then just compound that by saying, hey, what are you doing? You got to work harder. And that kid just now zones out of hockey because now he can't use that as his outlet. Um, so we're, we're, we're actively working on that and, and creating this platform to basically end the stigma around mental health at a very young age. Because if we can get this ingrained in kids that it's okay to not be okay, then we're going to have better adults because it's way easier to help kids than it is to fix adults that have, have you know, gone through a lot of trauma without being able to um, talk about it. So that's, that's the main focus that we're, that we're on right now. And it's something that I'm really, really excited about. Yeah. I was just, on a personal level, I, I just want to say thanks for doing that. Um, so like, I guess I'll say human, um, the mind has always been interesting to me. I've majored in psychology because I'm interested in people and why things happen. And it is still such, I mean, we're making progress culturally, but it is still such an issue. And I, I think it's not the whole equation, but I think it's like some people, you know, I have no idea about what the, the, what went on with your friend, but it makes me think about some people who maybe feel embarrassed that, they're depressed or, or, or feel like it's a personal defect. Like there's something wrong with me. Like I'm not good enough or it's something I did to make, you know, that makes me not worthy of help that, that all contributes to that stigma. And it's like, like you said, it's the idea that it's okay to not be okay. Yeah. And, and especially that component of, being able to talk to somebody, whether it's a friend or a parent or a teacher or a coach and that person being comfortable and knowing what to do to talk about it. I know I had several friends, um, growing up, we're talking 12, 13 years old, you know, go through puberty. So there's all kinds of going, things going on with your body, your brain, your hormones, um, who went through depression and, uh, suicidal thoughts. And they were, they felt comfortable enough to share those things with me um, and, you know, we figure out how to get them help because then I'm pass that on to the, you know, adults I trust, but uh, it, the whole ecosystem is so important. So I'm glad that you're taking that approach to it. Not that I'm an authority, but just, I guess, from personal experience, um, I know how important it is to, to come at it from all angles. Well, and I think, I think the, the big thing that really, helps especially for kids is um you know as human beings we naturally gravitate towards other people who share similar experiences or mm. likes with us right so um you know it's it's natural for somebody that likes sports to gravitate to somebody else that likes sports it's natural for uh a group you know that's why we have clubs that's why we have associations like you know, if you're, if you're somebody that likes to go on bike rides, there's probably uh, a website that you can go on and find 20 other people that like going on bike rides and join with them. Or you can, you know, you can join a club that has somebody that, you know, they, they watch soccer every morning at, you know, European soccer at 7am and you guys share beers over watching the soccer games, you know, there's something where you can find a, an interest that makes you feel good expressing what you're passionate about or what you have going on. There's almost something like that for everybody. Now, imagine having those thoughts and those feelings and thinking you are the only one in the world that is dealing with this problem, number one. And then number two, that you're probably going to have to deal with it for the rest of your life because who could possibly understand what I'm going through mentally because there's no one else. I can't see, can't physically see anyone else that has this. Like, it's just like, um, you know, concussions are such a huge issue in sports right now. Like when somebody has a broken arm, you can physically see the cast on them and you can get an x-ray and you can see when it's fully healed, right? And with a concussion, it's like, you, there's, no, there's, no, there's no cast, there's no, and they're all treated, they're all different, right? So when you're ready to play, it might be, not be the same as somebody else who has a concussion and they're like, I was back in a week, what are you doing? You're fine. There's no protocol. And it's the same thing for this stuff with mental health. It's like the way one kid might be feeling at 10 years old is probably way different than another kid might be feeling at 10 years old. How, how do we 
how are we becoming more understanding of that? And then as coaches and as people who, as, as someone who's now been through the, the traumatic experience of having one of your best friends do this to themselves, you start looking back for warning signs that you might've missed out on or when people might've reached out or whatever. How do we train our staff to understand those warning signs? When a kid acts up, is it because they're a problem or is it because that they're looking for attention that they're not getting somewhere else? What, what are those things? And, and we've aligned ourselves with the Chicago School of Psychology to help us um, you know, understand this. And I think the, if they're just like, just like with, you know, you can say working with kids in sports, there's an organization called safe sport. They make sure that all coaches are trained in how to, um, how, how to basically make sure that it's a safe environment for kids to play the sport. That's safe from like predatory coaches to make sure that Hey, no kid and a coach are ever in the same room at the same time. Mm. You know, there's all these steps that they've taken to protect these kids and to make sure that coaches aren't putting themselves at risk either in, in either situation. And every coach has to take a class on that. Like, hey, you have to sit through this and you have to understand this is why we're doing this. Here's what you look for. Here's how you fix a problem. How do we now come up with a curriculum that every coach doesn't have to be a huge glamorous thing, but every coach that coaches AYSO, youth basketball, travel sports, they have to go through an hour long class or a couple of certification things to understand here's what we're doing. Here's how we're working through it with our kids. And I think there's going to be a shift um, in sports that we've gone from athletes have to be tough. You can show no weakness, like weaknesses is, is going to hurt your team to an understanding that, Hey, if I'm feeling my best, I'm going to help the team. That might mean, Hey, I'm struggling in one area of my life and I need help with it. And once I get that fixed, I'm going to be a better hockey player. When we can get to that mindset as a, as a culture, we're going to see such a great improvement in our humanity. A little bit of a hard shift, but we're winding the clock down. So it seems, uh, particularly the pressure with you all. I feel like I, I've been saying that a lot lately because um, I'm talking to some really cool people. Um, I'm asking everybody this year, uh, what do you think the purpose of sport is? What do I think the purpose of sport is? I mean, most parents are going to tell you that it's uh, just a way to get their kids some energy out of their system when they come home and they're ready for dinner and to go to bed. Um, so there's there's a couple a couple of things that I think sports teaches that it doesn't matter what you play, what level you're at. Um, number one is uh, how to set goals and how to um, how to attain those goals and the sacrifice required to do that. Uh, and then number two is um, the greatest life teacher of all, which is adversity. Um, sports creates adversity, and um, you know for us with playing coaching high level kids. In, in hockey, you have to miss a lot of your events that your buddies are going to. And then also that's your commitment. And then your adversity is like, hey, when things aren't going your way, how are you going to overcome that? And in the big picture is, is one hockey game with 14 year olds, you know, going to alter their lives? No, but if they're able to overcome that adversity and say, okay, I've done that once. Now something hard happens in life they're going to have the tools already to be able to deal with those things. And I think those are, those are the two things, commitment, goal setting, and then adversity. So those are, those are the two things I think are, are the biggest teachers in sport. The, your second point makes me think about the idea or the attitude of how you do anything is how you do everything. That's, that's our, that, I, my kids hate, that I say that every single day, but the way you do anything is the way you do everything. Yeah. I say it all the time because it, it couldn't be more truthful. If you'll, if you'll cheat, if you'll cheat in one little thing, you're going to cheat on the big things. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is my, I, I love that you said that. And I, I hope the kids that I coach are, are going to listen to this. <laughs> I definitely did not prompt you to say that. But no, that, absolutely not. But this, so. it's, it's just, it's the same thing where it's like, you get, as a teenager, you get your first job or whatever. Like I worked, I worked at Cold Stone, so it's ice cream store. 
you could be like, oh, I just work at an ice cream store, you know, whatever. But like, I wanted every ice cream I handed somebody to be just like the picture. You know, I didn't want it to be soup. I wanted it to be beautiful. And I wanted to hand it off and I wanted to do it quickly, have a good time doing it. But it's like, you can take, you can take it not seriously or you can take it seriously. And that doesn't, doesn't mean you can't have fun, but just like when you have that attitude of like, I want to do my best it's pervasive through all the things you do. Like, Absolutely. I, you know, I want to, I, I, I want to, it shows up. I think it's, it may be even be easier too, because it's not a matter of like, I have to turn it on and turn it off. When I get, when I get on the ice, I've got to turn it on to be good. And then when I go home, I turn it off. It's like, it just, it's just how Choose things are. Great choose to be great at everything that you do. That's the other thing that our kids hate me saying all the time, but it's like, <laughs> if you're going to do something, be the best at it. Like there's certainly things you do for just pure enjoyment. Yeah. Um, but you know, if, if your job or your, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Like you said, it doesn't matter if you're serving ice cream cones or whatever else. Like I was, I worked at in and out was my first job when I yeah. was 16. And it's like, you know what there, but it also, I think that, you know, that part of that's internal, but part of it is your, the, the culture that's created in right. the environment. If you have a manager at Coldstone that says, guys, you know, you're not just making ice cream. People are coming here to celebrate a birthday to, to, for an experience. And how do we make it so that it's not only they're getting their ice cream, but it's a great experience mm -hmm. in their day and they can take that forward. It's like at In-N-Out, man, I don't know if you've ever been to one here in California, but they work their butts off here. I couldn't believe it when I first started. And I'm like, I was excited to take out the garbage because it was, you know, going to be the, the best thing for the group. So like when you, when, when it doesn't matter, like I, I in, in the real estate world here where, where, where we're, you know, we're, we're pretty busy. My, my boss is like, it doesn't matter if we're marketing a, a $600,000 condo or a $5 million house. Like we're going to put the same amount of effort into it because hopefully that person that buys that $600,000 condo is going to, get a pay raise and they're going to be buying a $3 million house from us someday. Mm -hmm. And it's just the right thing to do. So I, I, I couldn't, couldn't agree with you more that it's just, and, and you can't turn it on and turn it off because it shows, it, yeah. it, it, it shows like if you're, if you only work hard at the things that are fun to work hard at, you're not going to go very far. Right. It's, it's, it's a hat. I mean, who is it? Is it um, Plato, Aristotle? I don't know. It's, it's can't remember the quote right now, but it's basically like if you, if you, greatness, greatness is not a choice. It's, it's, it's a habit. It's yeah. Basically. I, I, I know that one. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's, it, you have to choose to be great every single day. And, um, I think the earlier people can learn that and the earlier that can become ingrained in you, it's the, the better. So, yeah. Brett, thanks for hanging out with me today. Um, if people want to see what you're doing with hockey, see uh updates from you where can they find you where can they keep up with what you're doing sure. yeah i mean uh instagram is probably the easiest because i have links to all of our channels on there it's just at brett bb b-r-e-t-t-b-e-e-b-e -E -E -E. um you know there's links to our, our hockey program uh what we do with real estate and uh our mental health uh, uh you know awareness situation there as well so all of that stuff is, is all there. Um, I'm always up for having conversations with people about just about anything. And uh, so, you know, feel free if there's anyone out there that wants to reach out to talk more about it. I'm happy to chat. That's good. Like I said, thanks for hanging out with me and, and for spending the time with me today, Brett. Yep. No problem. Thank you for having me.